0: So today, we are going through the book of Hebrews, and it's kind of cool because uh, we've been in the Old Testament, we've been in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, and Hebrews seems kind of a strange place to jump into, but really Hebrews is natural if we want to understand that. Uh, the understanding of what Jesus has done in the light of the Old Testament sacrifices and the Old Testament as far as the tabernacle is concerned and the Old Testament concerning people we've already read about earlier this year. If we want to have a, an understanding on how Jesus is the fulfillment of many of those things, it's better to go into the book of Hebrews sooner rather than try and read through the entirety of the Bible and then get to Hebrews later on and like, wait a second, that was way back there. How do I remember all of that? So that's part of the reason we're doing Hebrews here. And so just a little background information on Hebrews first before we get started on the sermon is that Hebrews, uh, the person who wrote Hebrews, is unknown. There's no identification of who that person is. However, there's hints It's very Pauline as far as the way that it's written. If you look at the logic that's in it and the things that are said about it, it's got a very, very idealistic, you know, Pauline bent. So whoever it was, uh, whether it was Paul himself or, or somebody very influenced by Paul. The second thing we note about the book of Hebrews is it's some of the best Greek in the New Testament behind that of Luke and Acts. And so my personal opinion, of course I don't know, we'll find out when we get to heaven, is that it was most likely written by Paul toward the end of his life when Luke was there with him being the penman. That's my personal conviction on it. Do I know that for sure? I absolutely do not. Uh, When we get to heaven, might find out it's Timothy, might find out it's somebody else, but I do know this. It's inspired by God. By the Holy Spirit, and therefore it's the Word of God. And it ties together many things that we've been talking about. And that's important for us. And so as we jump in to this passage of Scripture today... Uh, we have a sermon today, we read about almost the first four chapters of Hebrews. Almost got to the very end of chapter four and then we stopped. Some of you are like, but there's only a few more verses, why'd you stop there? But there's a reason, I promise. Um, so we, we got through the first four chapters. And today's sermon is called Greater Than, Greater Than. So we are a very competitive people. We, we live in a competitive culture. I mean, the most viewed programs on television are things like the Super Bowl, the NCAA championship. We're very big football people here. If we look around the world, it's the same way. It's the World Cup. As a matter of fact, we like comparing sports to one another. I like this sport more than that sport, right? How many of you have a favorite sport of hockey? Raise your hand. I know there's a few of you. Okay, Tanya Harwood is the last person I expected to raise her hand. When I say, I'm just being one, I'm like, David's going to say yes. Tanya's back there like, yeah. Can you imagine being at Tanya's house? Like, check him, check him. Oh my goodness. I, I just... I now want to see something new right now. I just want to see a hockey game over at Tanya's house, see how she acts. But we have, we have these favorite sports, and we compare them one to another, right? Online, I saw, this, um, I saw this, uh, this little meme talking about, oh, the favorite sport, you know, and it had comparison, World Cup right? Because it's making fun of, fun of Americans. Four billion people watching the World Cup. And then, you know, the Super Bowl, a hundred million people. And then somebody making fun of like, yeah, but we do it four times in a year, and that's, that's the same. And then they were making fun of us because we don't know how to do math. So it's like, that's only 400 million. It's not four billion. You're still 10 times short on that. And so we, we are competitive people, not just in our sporting events, though. Think about the nature of many of the most popular shows on television. American Idol, you know, or America's Got Talent. What are we looking at? We're looking at people competing against one another for a prize and using their talents to kind of go to the top. For you ladies, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, right? So, you know, I know some of you are like, that's just cringeworthy. I get it, but what are we seeing? We're seeing competition, right? Everything that we're seeing about is competition. If you come to my house, you will see Board games everywhere because we are board game aficionados. We're truly gamers. And we play games and we're very competitive. I want to win every game. Every game. I feel bad when I lose a game. Okay? It's been a long time since I raged out of a game, but but I feel bad when I lose a game. Okay? In our youth group. Youth, raise your hands. How many of you love it when you beat me or the adults at a game? I mean, there's some glory that's right there. It's like, yeah, like for the first time, seriously, I've been here. I've been youth pastor and been over the youth for 21, 22 years now. They have never, ever, when we've played capture the, uh, when we played refugee, found the, uh, found the thing twice and they did it and they were so happy they were like, we found it both times yeah, never has happened before, never, they're they're so proud of that it happened recently, it will never happen again, next time we play refugee, you think you're going to find that I don't think so there's no chance, zero I'm just telling you right now. We are a competitive people. If you've been around me any period of time, you know my favorite sport is college football. You know my favorite team is uh, the Clemson Tigers. Yeah, I could say it and you guys could say it in your sleep. So if we were to start talking about favorite teams of all time, like if, if you thought the best college football team of all time, I'm going to stake my flag on the 2018 Clemson Tigers and tell you, prove me wrong. And all of these things are good debates, right? they're they're fun because we're competitive people we live in a competitive society we look for those awards don't we in all of those things everything that i just mentioned though every one of those things were about things that really in the end don't matter a whole lot right television ratings you know the person we're pulling for on america's got talent who's going to win in you know the FIFA World Cup or the Super Bowl or the NCAA Championships or who's your favorite team. All of those things are fun little debates. But if we change the category from that of sports or entertainment or just in general life to that of religion, somehow the stakes get a little bit higher because that which is purported from those things the idea of eternal life, the absolvement of our sins, everything else, that, that becomes a bigger deal, doesn't it? Even within the Jewish people, they were building up for themselves people within their midst and, and beings within their midst that have a certain amount of authority, like, I follow these people. It would make its way into the Christian church, you know. In First Corinthians, there was this whole argument concerning, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Peter, and I follow Jesus. They were starting to compete concerning who's the greater voices. There, there's a place in which competition can have a very bad connotation when it comes to the state of your and my condition before God and the state of our souls before him. And who we're following to help us in our condition. And so, when we get into the first four chapters of Hebrews, what we see is we start to see these comparisons. These comparisons that are brought up of four specific types of beings, and I say beings on purpose because it's not just people we're talking about here that are compared in these four chapters. I don't know if you caught it or not as we read it together. The first one is the prophets. We have the prophets. The second one is the angels. They're mentioned in these passages as well. The third one is Moses, and the fourth one is Joshua. So what's their claim to fame? That's what we're looking at. We're looking at their claim to fame. And why are we looking at their claim to fame? Because those who were Hebrews, those who were from the Israelite, the Jewish faith, the people who had the law, those first three books that we've already read together, and the following Old Testament, these are the people they would revere And say, oh, these beings, whether they be angels or prophets or Moses or Joshua, great leaders. These are the ones who have set the example for us to follow. And the point of the writer of Hebrews is to say they pale into comparison for somebody else. And so let's look at their claim to fame, okay? So the prophets' claim to fame, if you will, just look at Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 1. It said, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. The prophets were the messengers of God. They were sent by God to give messages to enforce the covenantal relationship of the people of Israel. If you guys will remember, last week we talked about the blessings and the curses that are found at the end of Leviticus chapter 26. We read through all of them. Well the prophets would come along and their their proclamations would either be that of blessing if the people of Israel were being obedient to God and there'd be encouragement for that or there would be blessing of the punishments that were going to come that God was going to send punishments sometimes very specifically about peoples and other things that were going to happen as a result of their disobedience enforcing this covenant or it would be a proclamation of the future promise that God had given Abraham And others in the past that somebody was going to come. And this was the role of the prophets. To be this mouthpiece of God coming forth. this is their claim to fame. The second one are the angels. And so if we look at the end of chapter 1. Going into the beginning of chapter 2. It says this starting in verse 14. It says, are not all angels ministering spirits. Sent to serve those who will inherit Salvation. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And so, there's a comparison here, and we'll reveal the comparison later, but the comparison is this. Here are the angels' claim to fame. They are ministering spirits to serve those inheriting salvation whose message was binding. And we've already seen some of that take place. If you'll remember going back to uh, Genesis, and we look at the, uh, the angels who went to Sodom and Gomorrah, we see them going into that city, not just for judgment, but to save those who were marked for salvation, bringing out Lot and his family and saying, flee, go away from this place, because the Lord is going to destroy this place, and we can't do anything until you are safely away. His wife didn't believe him, turned back and became a pillar of salt. And So only three instead of four were saved from that place. But the ministering spirits, these angels, have come for those who were set apart for salvation. Ministering spirits. And yet, we also see the other side, those who are disobedient. We see terrible things happen. That's their claim to fame. And what about Moses? Let's take a look. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 5. We'll skip down to verse 5. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your eyes and thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Skipping down to verse 5, it says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. So Moses is a faithful servant of God, testifying in God's house all the things that are going to happen in the future. What all has Moses done? Of course, we've read through the Exodus so far. He's delivered the, he's God's person to deliver the people from Israel out of the bondage of slavery from Egypt. All of these miracles walking along that he has established for the people of Israel, a nation through these people. This wandering, this is amazing things. When you talk about Moses, you were talking about somebody who is looked upon like, wow, I mean, how great is Moses? Can you imagine the arguments that come among the Jewish culture about the greatest people? Moses is definitely up there, right, for the things that he's done. And then we have this reference to Joshua. And it's really an interesting reference because it seems like it's just kind of thrown in there. God is talking about a rest for God's people. And in the middle of all of this, we see this this kind of thrown in in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 6. It says this, It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again has set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through, the prophet, through David as it was said before. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. And you're wondering at this point, if you're, if you're reading through Hebrews, some of you maybe this week were like, wait a second, why did you just throw Joshua in there? Joshua just got thrown in there, and I don't even know why Joshua was thrown in there. Well, to know why Joshua was thrown in there is to know his claim to fame. Joshua is the one by which the people of Israel entered the promised land. This is the land of promise, the one that God had promised them. Here, I'm going to take you out of this land to a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses didn't do that. Joshua did. And Joshua walks into that place, and guess what? There's still no rest because this isn't the final place. If it were just a matter of getting to the promised land, like, Josh, oh, oh made us there! So these are their claims to fame. All of them. And yet, they pale in comparison to Jesus. Jesus is greater than all of these. and And I love, because... Here, at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, the writer pays no attention to like building tension or anything like that. Like, who's this person going to be? He begins with the thesis. This is what it's all about. Everything you think beforehand pales into comparison about what I'm going to share with you. And in these first three verses of the scripture... Of the book of Hebrews, I'm going to share with you why Jesus is better than everybody. Let's take a look at it together real quick. Read it as a whole, and then we're going to break it down because there's so much in just these three verses to really understand what's being said that's being unpacked throughout this letter to the Hebrews. Verse one, it says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and many times in and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Verse 4 goes on to say, it says, so he then he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to them. And we begin to see how Jesus is so much greater. We read this. It's like it's like reading the ending of your book first, right? This this is a thriller. This is an amazing thing. I don't know who's your favorite author. You know, you know what I'm saying? I'll just throw some out there. John Grisham is like that. I wonder what happened. You just open page one and it ends with this is how the trial ended. And you read the whole thing. It's like, oh, that wasn't like. That, that wasn't lying to us that was telling us the truth I, I don't know if that was a cliffhanger or if that was a good thing to know that here's how the trial ended and I got the answer at the end and I see all of this I read I, do I really want to read a book like that maybe if we want to be held in suspense we do but if we want to know the answer to why Jesus is greater than all of those things then I want to know first because I already have my arguments for the other people right It's it's kind of like my sports team. I I can tell you 10 ways why my sports team is better. So you're going to lead in with why yours is better or why this is better, why there's this objective thing here first. I'm starting with this. I'm going to build my case so that you can see how much greater Jesus is to all of these. Whether we're talking prophets or angels or Moses or Joshua, it makes no difference. Jesus is greater. And here's why i'm going to give you this really succinct statement right here and ain't nobody else going to measure up to that nobody so let's take a look because my hope today in this brief time that we have together is to open our eyes if we've forgotten how great our god is open our eyes to the greatness of jesus Open our eyes to realize he truly is greater than anything else around us. Because guess what? We forget. You and I forget at times. And other things compete for that attention. So my my prayer is by unpacking this, we rediscover the greatness of Jesus in our lives as revealed in Scripture because that's who he is. So go with me on this journey together. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, as we begin to break down this little passage of Scripture. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. We're going to stop right there. He's the heir of all things. Everything that we see in all creation is God's. He's the heir. Right? Right? And where do we see this at? Well, we see it in a lot of different places, but I'm just going to give little snippets of places we can find in the Bible where we go there. So at the rising of Jesus from the dead, at the end of Matthew's gospel... We're given the Great Commission, and a lot of us know what the Great Commission says. But the Great Commission, oftentimes, many people will quote beginning in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But there's actually a statement that's so very important that happens that precedes that one found in verse 18. So Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 says this. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want you to think about that for just a moment. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given me. This precedes the Great Commission. Why can we go out and do the Great Commission? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Why is that important? Why should we go out and make disciples? Why should we go? Those are hard things to do. Why? Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. That's how we can do it with confidence. He's the heir of all things. He is raised from the dead and has pleased the Father to hand all things to the Son. So when he tells us to go, we don't go in our own power. We go in his authority. And what authority is his? All of heaven. All of earth. Everything that ever existed. Everything that ever will be. Man. We got that type of authority behind us. It should be easy to go out and make disciples. Not that it's an easy thing, but we should have the confidence that God is truly with us because that's his promise. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's Jesus' promise to us, and we should go in that authority in sharing Christ to the world around us because all authority is not ours, it's his, and he's the heir. Continuing Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, And through him, who, through whom he made the universe. I mean, some of the bylines in scripture just blow my mind sometimes, right? This is like a partial sentence, right? I should be able to just talk about this over and over and over again. Through Jesus, the universe, everything that has been made was made through Jesus. Think about that for just a moment. I always think about Hebrew, uh, not Hebrews, but Genesis. You go to day four, God spends so much time on the sun and the moon, and then it says, and he made the stars. It's like, wait a second, whoa, sun and moon get all of this space, like a greater day, a greater light for the day, a lesser light for the night. Oh, and he made the stars. And we're still exploring all the universe and all of the galaxies that are out there and looking at all of that, and it's a byline in the word of God. Doesn't that just blow your mind sometimes? It's the same thing here this is a, this is a partial sentence to say oh and Jesus created the universe that's amazing and we see this in the scripture we look in John chapter 1 the very beginning in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. And if we read on through the verse 18, we find out that the word is Jesus. There's been nothing that has, not, that has been made that he did not make. He made it all. He was with God in the beginning. So when we go back and read Genesis chapter 1, from the very beginning, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Anything that has been made, Jesus has made. He is with God in the beginning. And now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We see the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all together in the work of creation. Right there from the very beginning, Jesus was there. And Jesus created all things. And so when the Word says, let there be light... Jesus is there and all things are created through him. All things. Everything. Even that byline, and he created the stars. That's Jesus. It's the Father, it's the Son, it's the Holy Spirit. They're all there in the triune nature of God creating all things. Are you beginning to see the magnitude of who this Jesus is that you and I get to serve? Oh, and if that were just the end of it, that would be more than enough for worship, right? That's not even close to the end of the list. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it continues on. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact repu- representation of his being. The sun is the radiance of glory of God's glory, and the exact represent... You can't say represent... uh, The exact likeness of his being. This isn't some side. I want to be, you know, you and I say, I want to be like Jesus. That's that's us as Christians. I want to be like Jesus, knowing we are inferior, that even on our best days, we're not 100% like Jesus, even though we want to be. That's not the type of likeness we're talking about. This is an exact reputation. If you've seen the Father, you have seen me. These are the things Jesus would say. That's not something you and I can say. If you see me, I want to be like Jesus. I want to, best I can do is like Paul. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's the best I'm going to get. But with Jesus, I get the exact representation of the Father. Exact. Nothing different. And so where we see this at, John chapter 10, we see it a lot of places in scripture, but John chapter 10 is a, is a great encounter of Jesus, even in his earthly ministry, where he makes this very clear to the people who are around him, who guess what? They're Jews. They're the very people that the people, the, the Hebrews are written to, or Jewish believers, are people who are wanting to understand how much greater Jesus is. So the Jews that were around him were asking, Hey, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And in verse 25 of chapter 10 of John, Jesus answers and he says, I tell you, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Did did you notice what happened as he's proclaiming those words to the Jews who are asking him? He says, I give my sheep eternal life, and no one snatches them out of my hand. This is Jesus. Jesus. My Father, who is greater than all, has given them to me, right? And is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. The same verbiage. Because Jesus is the exact rep- representation of the Father, the exact, not some carbon copy. Not some imperfect, you know, flawed individual who's trying to be like the other. No, Jesus is the exact representation. And so what happened as a result of that? What do you think the Jews did? Oh, Jesus, we know exactly who you are. Well, they, they did kind of say that. Just not quite in the way that Jesus, uh, probably Jesus expected it, but maybe not as his disciples and other people expected. It says, again, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to him, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You know why? Because he's the exact representation of the Father. He and the Father are one. That, that's... Just an amazing thing. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Man, we see this all throughout the Gospel of John, that that Jesus is imploring them to realize that he is, in very nature, God. We go back to the passage of Hebrews. But wait, there's more. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Can you get a hold of that? It's not that he created everything. He sustains everything by his powerful word. Everything that exists, exists because the word of Christ wants it to exist. You, me, the world that's around us, the people who are here, the planets that still are, because there's going to come a day where it doesn't exist anymore. You do know that the end of time is going to come, and all of these things are going to fly away before the face of those who's going to judge the earth and all who's within them. He is holding things together by his powerful word. Do you understand that? And without him doing that, not only are we not here, not only are the chairs that we're on not being sat on, there's nothing. There's nothing that's not sustained without him. And it's not the only place we see this. If we look in Colossians chapter 1, Verse 17, talking about Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything. He's the image and glory of God. All things are held together by him. There hasn't been anything created that hasn't been created that wasn't of him. He's the heir of all things. And it's not just that. I mean, all of those things talked about the nature of who Jesus is. I mean, think about that. That's, that's an awesome nature. Man, it blows away any prophet or angel or amazing leader, doesn't it? What's Moses got to hold, you know, the candle to Jesus? Sorry, Nothing. How about Joshua? How about the prophets? How about the angels in heaven? No, all things were created by him. He holds all things together, including the angels, including the prophets, including Moses, including Joshua, including you and me together by his powerful word. And if that wasn't enough, continuing on in verse 3 of Hebrews, after he had provided purification of sins. He provided for you and me the purification of sins. That God, that Jesus, that's what he's done. Everything that we've read about in the Old Testament concerning the sacrificial system that was pointing to a day that someday this will no longer need to be. Jesus is the one it points to, who provides the purification for sins for you and me. We read this in in Romans chapter 5. And Paul puts it so eloquently and yet at the same time helps us to recognize how powerless we are. In helping ourselves out of the situation we got ourselves into. You see, at just the right time, verse 6. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The purification for sins for you and me comes from by the being who created all things, who holds all things together, who is the heir of all things, who sustains all things by his living works, who is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his being, and he's the one who died for you and me. Not the angels, not the prophets. Not the great leaders of the faith. Jesus. Finally, the last part of that verse. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It's a place of authority, power, rulership. Airship. That's where the right hand is. The one who receives all things. That's what this is reserved for. Everybody understood this in the Jewish culture. This is why Jesus uses it to refer to himself. See, the original prophecy comes from Psalm 110 and verse 1. It's the Psalm of David. Let's take a look at it real quick. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Remember, this is a Psalm of David, and Jesus would point that out to his detractors who were trying to say, you know, you keep saying you're the Messiah, you keep saying you're this. And so they started asking Jesus questions, and Jesus responded with his own question. This is found in Matthew chapter 22 the very end of the chapter, starting in verse 41, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And no one could say a word in reply, and from that day, no one dared to ask him any more questions. See, the problem with asking Jesus questions is the questions end up being answered toward pointing to him as Messiah, as Lord, as Savior, as the Son of God, as the heir of all things, as the creator of all things, as the sustainer of all things. As the one who would purify us from our sin and on our righteousness, though we were enemies of God, this is the Jesus we serve. Man, amen, right? And we forget that. We forget that because everything in this world tries to compete with that. I'm sorry, your World Series is not near as exciting as Jesus. I'm sorry, your accolades are not as exciting as what Jesus has done for you. I'm I'm sorry, it doesn't matter. Your status, your wealth, whatever it is you're working toward to this, in this world, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you idolize because if it's not Jesus, it's less than him because he's greater than them all. He's proved it because he's the exact image of God. And this is why the writer of Hebrews leads with this because he doesn't want them to forget who it is they're worshiping. You and me, same way. Same way. We forget. We get caught up in all the euphoria of everything else and we forget what is valuable because Jesus deems it valuable because he made it valuable because he created it to be valuable because all things are created by him and for him. He's the heir of all things. Do you guys realize what that means? To be co-heirs with Christ is to be with him forever because he wants to sustain us forever because of his sacrifice, the purification of sins for all of the things that we did wrong. How could we not serve and be passionate about a God who has done that for us? See, that's why these, there's these condensed statements or mantras or, or, you know, creeds, if you will, that are from the early church in these small passages of Scripture to remind us in a very short period these succinct statements to help us realize and remember how great Jesus is because we're easy to forget. In Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3 at the very beginning is one of these. I want to read a few others as we're kind of closing out this time because I want you to re- be reminded I want you to be reminded of the greatness of God and what he's done for us. And not to think that things of this world, all these accolades, whatever it may be, people we idolize, positions, power, money, whatever it is, pales into comparison for Jesus is greater than all of that. And we need to value him that way. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 20, another one of these creeds, another one of these passages that packs so much in just a small bit, reiterates many of the same things we've just read. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 11. And Your attitude at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, that is why the name of Jesus is greater than any other. That, that is why we worship him. That is why he's the only hope for this world. Did you stand with me? Have you forgotten? Have you never known Jesus is greater. He's greater, greater than anything. Anything that you can think of. And the beauty is, as great as He is, He humbled Himself to die on the cross for you and for me. And if you have forgotten that, you can remember that today. And my prayer is joy for you. My prayer is excitement for you of serving this God that is greater than anything you can think, ask, or imagine. And if you've never known this God, If you have always thought that I I could do this by myself and and what I'm doing is good enough, I pray today that you will see that Jesus is greater than all of those things and better than that. Even if you see yourself saying, I am never going to be good enough, that's good. You know why? Because Jesus, this same God that's glorious among all things, came and died for you, rose again, and bids you to come. And he says with confidence that anybody who comes to me, they will never be taken from my hand. The Father is greater than all who will never be taken from His hand. You can have the confidence today that you can be Christ and start a new life right now because of Him. That is the great God we serve in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. If you want to start anew, we're going to invite you to come up front. We have our, we're going to have our elders up front. We're going to have our prayer warriors up front to hear just to pray for you. Maybe even pray for one another. I will tell our prayer warriors, I'll tell elders say every time, we're not immune. We need that regeneration. We need to remember ourselves these things that we often forget that Jesus is so great to serve. If you've forgotten, you come. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage one another. Let's walk out of here and tell the world with all authority that Jesus is Lord. You know why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth is his let's pray together as we do you come god thank you so much name of jesus we thank you for this day we thank you for the reminder as we begin this study in the book of hebrews that jesus is greater that he's greater than angels that he's greater than prophets he's greater than great leaders he's greater than any of our dreams and aspirations because all things are his and thank you oh lord Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come, that you died on the cross for us, for the purification of our sins, that we might be able to follow you, receive new life in Jesus Christ. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus that if any don't know you this day, they can come to know you. If any have forgotten this day, the great God that they've served and have replaced it with other things that they thought were more exciting, they, they walk out of here today knowing, knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is nothing greater and living for, worshiping, and living for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All things are yours, O oh Lord. Thank you, O oh God, that you sustain us. Help us to live for you, to go out, to make disciples, Lord, and to fulfill your great commission because you're with us and all authority in heaven and on earth is yours. In Jesus' name.